We're going to continue to speak about revival this morning, and that's been my theme for the last four or five weeks. And what I would like to look at this morning is the role of preaching in revival, Christ-centered preaching. We looked last week at the role of prayer and how we cooperate with God in prayer. And um, I trust that's encouraged you in terms of your, your own prayer life. We looked also at the kind of people that God uses, the kind of people that He prepares. Uh, we saw that they were all men and women of deep conviction, that a personal revelation of Christ in their own lives, that a personal experience of God in their own lives, that it radically transformed how they saw everything, how they saw the world, how they saw themselves. As a consequence, of that, they became people of deep personal courage and commitment, that they weren't afraid to get on and preach the gospel and uh, whatever persecution came along with that, so, so, so it was part of the deal. We saw that they were people of urgent and persistent prayer. Uh, and we looked at that specifically last week. And I said, just like out of the life of Hezekiah, Hezekiah identified that the problem that was in the nation at that time of, of Judah, the problem was prayerlessness. And remember I said to you that Judah is a picture of the church. Uh, it's an Old Testament picture of the people of God, Judah. And I said to you that Hezekiah, the first thing that he did was he reopened the temple doors and he reinstituted the prayer life of the nation. First thing he did, because he recognized the root of the problem. The root of the problem was the people, the relationship of God through the priests at that time that they had had been broken and had fallen into into uh, uh, there wasn't a relationship there anymore. And so he came as a, this king and he reinstituted those things to say, actually, I'm putting some things in place on behalf of the nation. And I, I want to encourage you. If you missed Wednesday night, we had an amazing time with Mike Pilavachi on Wednesday night, and uh, I want to just. Ask you to go online, listen to the podcast, or um, Xavier, Xavier is the. You can watch the DVD if you'd like, and all you have to do is um, email into Cheryl, get a password, and Mike ministered powerfully on what he called the dance of God, the dance of God. He talked about the Godhead is a, is a, uh, is a Godhead that exists in relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that we 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 are called as a people of God. And so much of what we hear these days is individual. And so he talked about the, what he called the pernicious idol of individualism. Where we just hear God for ourselves and we just exist for ourselves and we don't exist for the community of God, the, the called out ones, the ecclesia, the church. And that, that is the, the picture in the Old Testament is of the church, Judah. And the picture in the New Testament is always of the church. And we are those that fit into the church and, and our lives fit in and slot into what God is doing. And I want to encourage you. I was personally very, very encouraged. And I, I said on my tweet this week, I couldn't sleep. I was just like so... Yeah, encouraged. And uh, there was wonderful ministry by the Holy Spirit afterwards. It was a delightful, delightful time. And then I concluded uh, my message on prayerlessness last week and the role of prayer. And I asked you out of 1 Samuel 14, if you would become an armor bearer for this church. Remember the picture of Jonathan, who's the armor bearer for, uh, and he's armor bearer. And, and they don't know what's coming. They're going into battle. And Jonathan has this little thing in his heart. He says, God can save by many or by few. And his, and his armor bearer responds and says, do whatever you feel in your heart. I am with you, heart and 
soul. And so I asked you if you would become an armor bearer for Jesus. <laughs> whatever God wants to do, whatever, whatever Jesus wants to do, that we would be his armor bearers, that we would be those that commit ourselves to the discipline of prayer and the discipline of loving each other and the discipline of giving our finances and our time to see something of his kingdom come in our generation. And that's a great challenge. I know that. And I think that is practically expressed in loving local churches. Loving local churches, speaking well of, of local churches. And so I wanted, my challenge was, will you love this church? <laughs> will you speak well of this church? Will you, will you love this lampstand? Will, um, will you give your time, your best time, to this congregation as God does what he wants to do in this church? And I didn't say that exclusively. I said, of course, there are many churches that are, are fantastic churches all over the nation. But the reality is that we live here, and if you are coming to this church and you see this as your home, then let's pray for this church and love this church and love the community of believers in this church and get on and see the kingdom come in us and through us into this community. Amen? So it's about cooperation. It's about teamwork. It's about us cooperating with Jesus, the high priest. It's about us cooperating as a congregation together as the leaders lead and the congregation responds and we all together, Paul says, we hear the mind of Christ. And as we do that, we start to see much more effect as the church goes forward. And so uh, I used that phrase last week of the joyful assaulting of the heavens in prayer. <laughs> the joyful assaulting the heavens in prayer. And it's a discipline that we, we, we need to give ourselves to, to joyfully assault the heavens in prayer. And it's clear from church history that prayer is the thing that is present in revival and it's also the single most important factor of bringing the Holy Spirit down. Yeah? Prayer. And um, George, I apologize, I forgot. If uh, George is, George is um, also putting together a dinner for the FGB, the Full Gospel Businessmen's Association, and they're looking to um, have a dinner in the next couple of weeks. And they, there's a speaker that's coming, for, uh, 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 an Indian man that I, I can't remember his name of. But please, if you could go and speak to George. George, why don't you just lift your hand or stand up? Thanks. George is coordinating it, and it's in the next couple of weeks. And if you'd like to speak to George afterwards and get all the details uh, from him, that would be great. Sorry? Or Damien. Damien is the handsome man who told us about his son. <laughs> all right. So, giving ourselves to the discipline of praying, encouraging each other, and uh, loving what God is doing through this local church. So I'd like to go back now just a couple of weeks, and one of the first sermons I preached was, I referenced uh, a book written by William Sprague called Lectures on Revival of, of, of Religions, uh, which, he, um, which he published in 1832. And remember, there were five things that he said are present in revival. One is prayer. The second one was a renewed preaching of the gospel. Renewed preaching of the gospel. And I want to say Paul, in Galatians 6.14, says this amazing thing. He says, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Jesus. Paul also says in Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great amongst the Gentiles are the riches of His glory, of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Him we proclaim. We proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might be present, we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of Christ's energy within it, where He powerfully works within me. So for Paul, for the church fathers, for the, the apostles, there was a primacy in their lives of preaching the gospel, of proclaiming the good news of Jesus, of preaching the blood of Christ. And that's what motivated Paul. That's what motivated the, the, the apostles. To proclaim Christ. There's, there's different words used in the New Testament. To herald Christ. To placard Christ. These are different uh, translations of some of the Greek words. Like a placard, to placard Christ. It's like one of those huge billboards, you know, that you drive along the, the highway, the M1 or whatever, and you see those massive billboards. To, pl- placard, to placard him. To make him like that. A, a big poster that everyone can see. The name of Jesus. Uh, and they preach the purity and the simplicity of the gospel. And that was Paul's commitment. And uh, I believe that's why the early church grew so extraordinarily quickly and in amazing ways as they, under the power of the Holy Spirit, preached the gospel, God broke into the community. And as I've been reading about revival, hello, it's nice to see you back. Yeah, great. So, how was Australia? It was good. Vicky's just been away for, I don't know how long, how many, a couple of months? It's great to see you back. Um, it's also, it's also true that in the story of the church and the story of revival, God has used men and women that have been absolutely committed to the Word of God as a primary motivation in their lives. Uh, they are committed to the authority of God. They are committed to the authority of the Scripture. And as we've been referencing Hezekiah, in Hezekiah, his story, that's also true. In 2 Chronicles 29 verse 15, it says this, They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the word of the Lord. It was as Hezekiah responded to God's word, as he heard God's word for his own life and for the nation, and he implemented some things that God brought revival. As they responded... So people that God uses in revival, in their hearts, there is an absolute commitment to the Word of God. And uh, in 2 Chronicles 29 and 30, there are two chapters that describe what, Heze- what, he- what Hezekiah did after he had cleared the temple. He cleared all the rubbish out of the temple, and he re-established three things. He re-established sin offering, burnt offering, and the Passover. And those three things in the life of the nation had just disappeared. They weren't practicing them anymore. So he opens the temple, he says, I'm re instituting prayer. The priest can once again offer sacrifices once a year on behalf of the nation. And then he, he, he brings back these three offerings. The sin offering, the burnt offering, and the Passover. And there can only be one reason for that. One reason alone. And that all points to the gospel. Every sacrifice pointed people to their sin, but it also at the same time pointed them to the, the absolute reality and possibility that there was redemption through blood for them. Every Old Testament sacrifice is preaching the gospel to the people. It's a gospel message. In fact, I want to say it's a gospel sermon. Every time they slaughtered an animal, every time that cry went up, and it's quite, it's quite a... 
it's a very graphic thing, isn't it, when you think of an animal being sacrificed. I mean, the only way they sacrificed an animal is they slit its throat and blood came. And every time that cry went up of an animal dying, it was saying this to the people. It was saying, there's a perfect lamb that is coming. There's a Messiah that is coming. There's a perfect sacrifice that is coming. There's the perfect lamb coming that takes away the sin of the world. Every time they made a sacrifice, it was pointing them towards the gospel, pointing them towards Jesus, pointing them towards Messiah who was coming to take away the sin of the world. It's an incredible thing. So I want to say to you, not only is every Old Testament sacrifice a preaching of the gospel, it's also a preaching of the gospel with Christ at the center. The perfect lamb. Right at the center. And for me, that is revival preaching. When we are pointing people towards Christ, just as it was for Hezekiah, and he turned and responded to the Word of God, and he pointed people to Christ, he pointed people to the Gospel, he pointed people to the blood covenant, the sacrifice that had to be paid for the sins of the nation to be taken away. And for everyone that's used in revival, everyone that's used to build the church, are preachers of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want to say the historical Jesus, the, the, the Jesus of the Bible. Revival is not started with liberal theologians. There's not one, one example of revival that is started with those that do not believe the word. Revival always starts with those that have in their hearts the authority of the Scripture and the truth of God's Word. Jesus is who He said He was, and everything that we read about Him is true. And when we look at the history of revival, all great revivals have great preachers. Great preachers of the Word. And that's because it's the nature of revival is to preach the Word of God. It's the preaching of God, uh, the truth of, 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 of Jesus under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that's the, that's the testimony of history. That's the testimony of Scripture. Because that is the thing that reaches into the hearts and the lives of people and it transforms them from the inside out. I can't do that. None of you can do that. The only thing that does that is the power of the Holy Spirit impacting people's hearts, transforming them, bringing revelation. And Hezekiah knew that, and that's why he responds to the Word of God, and he points people back to the Word of God and says, look, this is where we've gone wrong. This is the sacrifices we need to get in place. And they're all pointing back to the Gospel and Jesus who is still to come, Messiah, who is still to come. And so wherever you read about revival, you read about great preachers. You read about great preaching. And uh, it's very interesting to me as I was reflecting this week on Acts chapter 2. The first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room, what happens? A sermon is preached. <laughs> Peter gets up and he says, let me tell you what is going on. And he preaches the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When revival comes, it's not necessarily about soaking meetings. As much as soaking meetings are good, it's about the power of Jesus. It's about the blood of the cro- uh, that has come through to us through his death on the cross. And wherever revival happens, you know, preaching doesn't decrease, preaching increases. <laughs> the immediate result. It was as soon as the people were, the, 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 the 120 were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they began to realize, I am a herald of the good news of Jesus. And what the first thing they pray is, God, enable your servants to preach your word with great power. That's what they were interested in, proclaiming Jesus, lifting him up, making him the center of everything. And I'm, I'm saying this to encourage you in your own life. 
All of us are preachers of the gospel. <laughs> we are preachers in the gospel in the marketplace, in, the, in, our, in our, the schools that we are, whatever we are doing, whatever your, your particular area of skill is, you are called to be a preacher of the gospel. Whether you are a mum, a housewife, a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, a artiga. You're called to preach the gospel. And that's the word, herald, that Paul uses in the New Testament. When he goes to the church in Rome, in chapter 10, verse 15, he says this, How are they to preach, herald, unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who herald, who preach the good news. He says the same thing in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, through the folly of what we herald, to save those who believe. Preaching is folly to the world. Preaching is foolishness to the world. For some person to get up and declare, the only thing that you have to do is believe on Jesus by faith. You receive Him by grace through faith, and you are saved, and you are put to right with God immediately. And all your sins are, though they were scarlet, they are white as snow. It is foolishness to the world. You know why? Because they want to say, the world wants to say, I must do something to earn salvation. That's what every other religion is about. Earning your way to salvation. If you are Buddhist, it's karma. Behave in a certain way so you can have good karma. But you don't get recycled as a snail. That's true. That's karma. That's how it is. You, you live a certain way to get good karma so when you come back, you reincarnate it as something better. Man, what a way to live. Great truth of Christianity says you are righteous in Christ. He sees you because of the blood of Jesus. He sees Christ's righteousness imputed to you, and you are perfect in His eyes. How liberating, how freeing. That's the gospel of Jesus. So preaching has always been heralding the good news. It's always been uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the ancient cultures, heralds were those that went ahead of the king. They were like ambassadors, and they announced on behalf of the king that the king was coming. That's our role as those that preach the gospel, is to go ahead and to announce the good news, to herald the good news. Jesus has come. The blood of Jesus is available to all. For all who would believe, they are saved by faith. And uh, Arthur Wallace says this, uh, thank you Alan again for this quote, Arthur Wallace in uh, his book, In the Day of Your Power, he says this, revival is more than big meetings, it's more than religious excitement, it's more than the quickening of the saints or they're being filled with the Holy Spirit, it's more than a great gathering of the souls, of souls, one may have any one of these things without revival and yet revival includes all of them. Revival is divine intervention in the normal course of spiritual things. That's what he's saying. The normal course of church life, preaching, praying, pastoring, uh, taking care of people, etc., etc. When revival comes, all of those things happen like on steroids. <laughs> At an extraordinary level. I want to suggest to you that if we see loads of people saved quickly, perhaps our counseling and pastoring of people is also going to have to go. Perhaps revival is going to mean more work for everybody. Because so many people need to be helped in revival, isn't it? They get saved and then God starts doing stuff. We're going to help them, counsel them, etc., etc. That's exciting, don't you think? Amen. Yeah, it is. 
He concludes, he says, It's God revealing himself to man in awful holiness and irresistible power. It's such a manifest working of God that human personalities are overshadowed and human programs are abandoned. It's man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. <laughs> it's the Lord making, uh, making bare his holy arm and working in extraordinary power on saint and sinner. That's revival. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're saying, God... Do it in our generation. Do it with us. Amen. Absolutely. And so one of the primary tools that God uses is Christ-centered preaching. Christ-centered preaching. The preaching of Jesus. And I want to, again, just give you a couple of examples from church history. There was a guy called Peter Waldo. He was saved in 1170. And he discovered the truth and authority of God's word for himself. And so he sent out preachers with a Bible. Two by two. And they came known as the Wal- became known as the Waldians, the Waldian movement. And they went all through Europe in the 1100s. And the whole of Europe was touched to these, these bedraggled bunch that went around preaching the word of God. The Waldians. And then 200 years later, John Wycliffe. Remember, Wycliffe was the first person to translate the scripture into English. 200 years later, he did that. And he sent out preachers, two by two, armed only with the new translation, English translation of the, the scripture, and they preached the word of God. And that really prepared the way for the Reformation that came later. And there was a guy in the, in the Reformation called Hugh Latimer who was a famous preacher and he preached the authority of the Scripture and both noble, noble people, when you read the, the accounts of how, where he preached, he preached in, in noble houses, he preached on the streets, he preached everywhere. Wherever he went to preach, people came to hear him in their hundreds, in their thousands. The Puritans, you know the Puritan movement, the Puritans placed at the the highest thing they were called to do was preach the Word of God. It was their their most important duty as a Puritan was to preach the Word of God. Preaching in revival is seldom eloquent, it's seldom polished, it's seldom graceful, (laughs) but it's always powerful. Whenever I've read what I've been reading in the last couple of weeks, that is what comes through again and again. It's not men that are very eloquent and smooth talkers and kind of really good at communicating all the things that we we think are important. It's people that are on fire with the gospel that God uses. And sometimes the words don't come out right and they stumbled over and all that kind of stuff, but God uses the preaching of His Word in revival in a powerful way and it transforms people. That's the characteristic of revival preaching. People change. <laughs> and in a real sense, the sermons are felt by the people. It's not just like, oh, well, we understand. Yeah, that was good. Thank you for your communication. It was like, in the heart, something happens. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, You've heard, I've quoted Robert Murray McShane before, and he talked about the revival that happened in Dundee in 1839, and he says this, that there was nothing peculiar about what the ministers were doing. He says this, They have preached, so far as I can judge, nothing but the pure gospel of the grace of God. The pure gospel of the grace of God, that's what they preached. They have done it fully, clearly, solemnly, with discrimination, with urgency and affection. They all, I think, seek the immediate conversion of people. 
That's how they preached. They preached expecting that someone was going to respond, that someone was going to get saved. That was the expectation of their heart. Simply, clearly, powerfully pointing people towards the gospel, towards the blood of Jesus. That's what the same thing happens of Paul. I said this last week. They said his eloquence, his speaking skill amounts to nothing. They dismissed him as a preacher, remember? But we know from Corinthians that it says whenever he preached... There were signs following. Power came when he preached. People changed when he preached. Doesn't matter, it wasn't eloquent. And that for me is revival preaching. So Duncan, they said this of Duncan Campbell. I'm trying to choose examples of people from the UK. He said, it says this, there was nothing complicated about his preaching. It was fearless and uncompromising. He exposed sin in its ugliness and dwelt at length on the consequences of living and dying without Christ. His words were not a repetition of accumulated, accumulated ideas, but the expression of his whole being. He gave the impression of his preaching that he was preaching with his entire personality, not just with his voice. These men are on fire with the gospel. Not with the latest theory of church growth. Not with the latest ideas of how to do whatever. Grow your church. Be successful at business. They were on fire with the gospel. With the good news of Jesus. And that's what God blessed. That's what God pours His Spirit out upon. And uh, in contrast, the, the Welsh revival of 1904, it didn't last long. And one of the, the commentaries I was reading said one of the reasons given was that there was not a primacy of preaching in the 1904 Welsh revival. And it didn't last. Uh, one of the commentators on the 18th century awakenings, which we've talk, talked about, he said this. The uninhibited and compelling urge to preach the gospel was a basic characteristic of all the personalities involved in those revivals, regardless of what other gifts they had. Isn't that interesting? Regardless of what other gifts they had. So he says this, both Harris, both Harris and, and Wesley had organizing ability. William Williams and Charles Wesley had unsurpassed genius at writing hymns. Whitfield had a compassionate heart and breadth of vision that encircled the entire globe. Uh, Rowland's, his communi communion services uh, seasons were heavenly, but each of these felt deeply and absolutely the priority and unique authority of preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit. So they had gifts. Some wrote hymns. Some organized the church. Some had evangelistic uh, heart and they wanted to touch the whole world. But all of them wanted at the very center, they wanted to preach the gospel of Jesus. Christ-centered preaching. Here's the other thing I found in my reading. <laughs> that when revival comes, people love preaching. The congregation loves preaching. They want to sit under the Word. They want to hear the Word. It's not just, oh, well, now we tolerate the preacher. God, please let him be half an hour. And then we can go out. In revival, when revival happens, it's not like that. It's like people want to sit under the Word. They want to be instructed. Why? Because Christ is at the very heart of the preaching. And let's reference Hezekiah again. 
I've said already, what he was doing was pointing people to the blood covenant. It was central to worship. And from 2 Chronicles 29, verse 20, it says this, Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. They They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. And they slaughtered the bulls, the priests received the blood, and they threw it against the altar. Can you just imagine this? It's like, it's a lot of blood. It is very gory. (laughs) Seven of all of these things. Bulls, rams, lambs, seven male goats. They slaughtered them, they threw, threw the blood against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and the blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and the blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly. They laid their hands on them, imputing the sin of the nation on the goats. And they slaughtered them and made a sin offering with the blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. How many times in those verses don't you hear the phrase, the the blood was thrown against the altar? Repeatedly, over and over again. The blood sacrifice involved great amount of blood. And the story is that the priests had stopped doing that because we, we, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago and they thought, well, there's actually there's better things to do than to um, just offer up these animals as a, uh, a burnt offering. This is a great opportunity for a barbecue. That's basically what the priests started doing. And they, instead, of, instead of doing what God had told them to do, they started having great barbecues. And then Hezekiah comes along when the Holy Spirit brings him back to, to, to the truth of what the Holy Spirit is saying. What happens? He reinstitutes these things in a proper way to point people towards the gospel. Point people towards Jesus. That's God's way has always been this way of blood sacrifice. The blood taking away our sin. And so when we, when we look at revival preaching, there are a number of things that characterize revival preaching. And there are great themes that when you read the, the New Testament letters, these are the things that the, the, that the apostles major on. We are justified by the blood of Christ. We have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. He has made peace for us through the blood shed on the cross. We are redeemed with the blood of Jesus. His blood purifies us from our sin. He has washed us in His blood. These are the great themes of the Scripture. And I want to say to you, as I've been reading, this emphasis on the blood of Jesus as central to the Gospel has always offended people. Always. Perhaps even as I'm speaking this morning, you're going, oh, I just that blood thing, it's like, it gives me the creeps. Maybe, you, maybe you're feeling like that. It's always been like that. Charles Wesley and Whitfield commented in the 18th century, when they preached the blood of Jesus, people hated it. They didn't like it. It offended them to believe that the blood of Jesus takes away your sin. It's offensive to those that do not believe. And in fact, some modern translations of the Scripture have even tried to, uh, paraphrases, they've even tried to take out the word blood and just substitute death. So it's not about the the blood of Jesus, it's just about the death of Jesus. It's, It's more palatable for us to take it like that. But what is my point? That was not the way of the apostles. That was not the way of revival preachers. Every single one of those that God has used in revival and building the church preached the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible. 
His, the historical Jesus. And so they used words like this. He was killed. He was murdered. He died for you. He was crucified. He was condemned. He was raised to life. They used that kind of language because it pointed to the historical Jesus who lived and died amongst us. And they continued and they said things like, He's been glorified by God. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the Son of Man. He's the judge of the living and the dead. Whenever you read the New Testament and the letters, that's the language of the New Testament. The very life of Jesus, His life, His death and resurrection, is at the heart of the Gospel, the very heart of the New Testament. And the apostles never avoided the issue of preaching the cross, of preaching the blood of Jesus, although it offended people. Acts 2.36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, both God and Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. <laughs> Makes it plain. And it's interesting that... Um, during times of revival, the preaching of the blood of the cross, the singing of hymns or songs about the blood of Jesus and about the redemption that we have, it's central. The cross is preached, the blood is preached, people sing about it. There's a special blessing that happens in times of revival. And it's interesting, in times of revival, that the breaking of bread becomes a profound thing. Uh, in some of the stories I've read, uh, in Cambuslang in Scotland in 1742, 20,000 people broke bread together. 20,000 people. Because there was a, a, a sense of celebrating in a, a way that was included the whole community, the reality of what Christ had done. And I want to suggest to you that for us, as God stirs some of these, things, these themes in our hearts, that the primacy of the Lord's table, again, is celebrated with reverence and holiness. And There's nothing about the bread and the, the juice that is, you know, they symbols of what Christ did. But we should celebrate with, with reverence and with love and with joy every time we break bread. Amen? It's a primary, primary celebration of the basic truth of what Christ came to do. And I said already that Wesley and Whitfield uh, said in their day that the preaching of, of the cross was hated, the preaching of the blood of Jesus was hated, and I want to say that not much has changed. It's still true for our generation. But isn't it amazing that uh, through that which is despised, the blood of Jesus, thousands, millions have found peace, justification, redemption, reconciliation, cleansing, all these things by the blood of Jesus as we celebrate around his table. Amen? You doing okay? And so I just want to point you to the revival of, uh, in Wales, 1905. You know, the great theme of that revival, the, 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 the hymns that they sang were all about re redemption through the blood of Jesus. And I want to say, let that become true of us in our generation as well. Through the, what is preached from this pulpit, through what we sing, through what, how we worship, that we sing about the blood of, of, of Jesus and Christ at the center of everything that we do. And, uh, you know, we don't probably like this, but, you know, we always we can talk sometimes of the, the fire and brimstone preaching of the past where people preach about sin. And we, we, we kind of, our culture doesn't like that. It's a little bit uncomfortable. But I want to say, even in, even in terms of revival, wherever that kind of preaching was preached, it always pointed to the cross. 
always pointed to the gospel. And so there might have been a sense where people's sins were, were, were pointed out, but always it was redemptive, always pointing to the gospel, always saying, look forward to the gospel, look to the blood of Jesus. And that's what Hezekiah did. Uh, 2 Chronicles 29, he reminded the people of their sin. He reminded them of God's anger against Ju- Judah and against Jerusalem, which again, I want to say, pictures of the church. And he says this, Therefore the wrath of the Lord came upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he's made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing. Isn't that an interesting way it puts it? Hissing. People are going, <laughs> when you think about Judah. As you see with your own eyes, for behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. But then he always points them towards the sacrifice, to what God wants to do. Always points them towards forgiveness. Always points them towards reconciliation available to them through the blood of Christ. And that's typical of revival preaching. My last example. Remember I I told you about Count von Zinzendorf, the Saxon guy in Germany. He wrote a letter to someone in 1727 about the Moravian revival and how they preached in that revival. And this is what he says. Our method of proclaiming salvation is this to point out to every heart the loving Lamb who dies for us and although He was the Son of God offered Himself for our sins as mediator between God and man between His throne of grace, His example, His brother, His preacher of the law, His comforter, His confessor, His saviour in short, His all in all By preaching His blood and of His love unto death, even death on a cross, never, either in discourse or in argument, to digress even for a quarter of an hour from the loving Lamb. To name no virtue except in Him. And from Him and in His account to preach no command except faith in Him. No other justification but that He has atoned for us. No other sanctification but the privilege to sin no more. No other happiness but to near be near to Him. To think of Him and do His pleasure. No other self-denial but to be deprived of Him and His blessing. No other calamity but to displease Him. No other life but in Him. That's what they preached. Him, Jesus, Christ crucified. And surely that's what Paul means when he says this, I resolve to know nothing while I once amongst you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says that to the Corinthian church. Powerful preaching is surely the hallmark of revival. It's the greatest hallmark of revival and it's the greatest weapon of revival. It's, to, it's, it's preaching of the gospel, preaching of the good news of Jesus. And uh, I think sometimes when the church is in decline, we try to resort to all sorts of things to kind of get the crowds through the door, you know. Stir, stir enthusiasm in people. We try all sorts of things. And some things do work. I think, uh, I think there is uh, merit in some of those things and certainly people are saved. But I believe that revival shows where God's heart really is. God's heart is for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. The simplicity and purity of preaching the good news of Jesus. And surely I want to encourage you as a church that our cry, the cry of our hearts over the next years, should be that God would raise up preachers that preach like that. 
Maybe there's some of you in this congregation that are going to preach like that. Going to preach the simplicity and the purity of the gospel. Going to preach the blood of Jesus. That's our message. That's our cry. That's the heart of our worship. That's the heart of our evangelism. That's the, that's the heart of everything that we want to do and give ourselves to is Christ. It's the heart of counseling people. Point them to Jesus. That Jesus is the very center of our sermons, our worship. And God always intended that under the power of the Holy Spirit, hearts would be radically affected, radically changed by those that hear preaching under the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, last thing. In times of revival, there's a hunger and a thirst for what God has to say. People want to hear what God has to say. I think through... Technology. Everyone now has become a sermon, uh, uh, their own Bible student. And I've got nothing against study. I think we should study. With all of our hearts, we should study. But the, the downside is this, that whenever people hear a sermon, they measure it against their own opinion and what they've read. And so their opinion is just as valid as the opinion of the preacher and just as valuable as the opinion of the preacher. And I agree. That is well and good. We can all have our own opinion. And uh, if people hear a sermon and they don't agree, they have every reason to. But what I am trying to say to you, when revival comes, there's a respect for the preached and expounded Word of God. There's a readiness to submit to the expounded Word of God that is preached. And I do not claim infallibility for preachers. I think preachers say things they shouldn't. I've said things I shouldn't. I'm not saying preachers are infallible. But what I am saying is when revival comes, there's an attitude in congregations to respond and obey to the Word of God. That's what I am saying. And I say that to you against the backdrop of what Mike uh, brought on Wednesday night. Against this individualistic culture in which we live. Now, I don't agree, so I won't, I won't do this. I don't agree, so I won't. It's all individualistic. It's not for the people. Yes? Uh, let this church be a church for people. Amen. People. God's people. And I want to say to you, as, as um, uncomfortable as it might be for some, submission to the preached word runs through... It's a condition of worship that runs through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Submission to the preached Word of God. And what does it say? Acts 2.42, it says, they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching. They were dedicated. They gave themselves. When, when revival comes, it ha doesn't have a hallmark of independence. It doesn't have a hallmark of independence. It has a hallmark of dependence on the Scripture for all of us. And there is a respect for those who explain it, who expound it, who give themselves. It's the task of preachers to proclaim, to herald Jesus, to put Him at the center of everything. And I trust increasingly that everyone who preaches from this pulpit will put Christ at the center of every single message that is preached from this pulpit. That's our commitment as a leadership team. That's what we're aiming at. We've been aiming at it for a couple of years. We want this church to become a place that is rooted in Christ, planted in family, fruitful in life. Every single one of us. Thank you, Colin. That's our dream. It's a kingdom dream. It's about Jesus. It's about His will for us. And I'm asking you again, will you become part of that dream? Will you become an armor bearer for Jesus? Will you preach the gospel through your life? Will you preach the gospel with your words? Whatever you're called to do, whatever your skill is, whether you're a businessman, whether you're a teacher, a nurse, whatever you are, that's what's going to bring revival.
all of God's people being priests, every single one of us rising into the fullness of the authority that God has upon our lives as his sons and his daughters, preaching the word through our lives, through our actions, and with our words. Centrality of Christ-centered preaching.